Greetings. I'm excited to jump back into Genesis tonight. Welcome. If this is your first time, uh, we're going through Genesis a verse at a time. And when we're done with Genesis, we'll move on to Exodus. The plans for the next few weeks are that within the next two weeks after tonight, we will actually finish Genesis, which is pretty cool. And then we will have spring break that I believe is the 16th. And then on the 23rd, we will begin Exodus. And it's a pretty cool deal because for the first time in the history of Crosspoint, on Wednesday nights, we will have adults, students, and children all studying Exodus together and going through it on the same schedule of curriculum. So I'm pretty excited about that, actually. Um, Tonight's study is a bit different because the large focus of tonight's study in Genesis, we're in Genesis 47, verse 13 is where we're going to start. It's a large focus on just this practical wisdom and insight. We're going to essentially be reading through all these, it's sort of like business transactions. It's just a weird chapter of business transactions and details that actually do inform spiritual realities for us. So it's a little bit different than normal. Uh, So let's pray and um, we'll jump right into it. Lord, we come to you now and thank you for this Wednesday evening. Lord, I'm thankful uh, that though each of us have had uh, different days with different levels of responsibility and maybe stress or even rest for some of us, uh, I'm thankful that you've brought us all here together uh, to um, open the Word and consider what it says and maybe how we respond. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would guide us. Uh, I've trusted you in the preparation of this, and I, I pray that you would continue to uh, guide me and give me wisdom in the teaching of it and the communication of it. Uh, Lord, I pray for uh, honesty tonight in our hearts and in our minds that as we ask a bunch of questions on maybe some perspectives that we have in regards to having different areas of our lives that are maybe off limits, I pray that you would break down whatever barriers need breaking down Uh, so that we would be a people who live our entire life for your glory, completely given to you, and understanding that we're your servants because of uh, the price that you have paid on the cross uh, for our salvation. We love you very much. We come before you humbly this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, So it is not self-help night at Crosspoint. That's not what this is. It isn't Business 101 night at Crosspoint. Uh, but we will be talking about practical wisdom. What we're really looking at is um, very practical biblical wisdom and how it impacts everybody else when, when we see things in light of what God wants us to do, how we're supposed to move, even in areas that maybe are sort of off limits on spiritual things for, for some of us. Hopefully not in large part, but maybe for some of us. So look at 47 verse 13. We've just come out of Joseph reuniting with who? Jacob. Yeah, that's a big deal. Why? Yeah, he thought he was dead. He thought his son was dead, and the son wasn't sure if the dad was really alive. And now here they are, many years later, reuniting. And it is really incredible. Um, This whole story is very dramatic. There are many ups and downs. There's lots of emotions. Um, And the Lord has Moses particularly include the details so that we can look at the details and learn from them and see what our God is like and see how he has dealt with his people uh, throughout the generations. Um, So last week they 
uh, reunited, and then he settled them in the land of what? He settled his people in the land of what? Goshen. And this is going, what we're going to need to do as we move from Genesis into Exodus is keep your eyes on Goshen because it's incredible what the Lord does with that little piece of land where they were all sent. Now, why did they all go to Goshen? Obviously, Joseph had some movement, but what, what was their trade that was abominable to the Egyptians? What? They were shepherds. And why is that ironic? All Egyptians see all shepherds as an abomination. Why is that ironic? Say that again. Yeah, they've got one running the show. They've got this little uh, former shepherd uh, saving their tails by not letting them die in the midst of famine. Uh, Why else is that ironic? Jesus. There we go. Someone just throw out the good Sunday school answer, and, so, and it's going to be right. Jesus, the good shepherd. That's exactly right. If, if the Israelites would have moved from the land of Canaan into Egypt and just kind of been swallowed up in the culture of Egypt and become very Egyptian-like in their living, when the good shepherd Jesus comes on the scene, it, he wouldn't have been understood in the right capacity. So here we see God moving very strategically behind the scenes to make sure that his people don't stop being shepherds. But in fact, they are put in the land of Goshen because they're an abomination to the Egyptians so that they can continue to shepherd. And, and at the end, Pharaoh actually says, and uh, if there's some really good ones, put them in charge of my livestock. Like, they get a job out of the thing too. So God takes care of them, gives them a job, gives them a piece of land. It's pretty incredible. And then in verse 13, uh, they have come, they've settled, and it says in 16, or I'm sorry, in 12, it says, and Joseph provided his father, his brothers, and all his father's household with food according to the number of their dependents. Now, background, why are they in Egypt in the first place? Famine. And what do we know about this famine before it even begins? Because of the dream that God gave to Joseph. It was worldwide. Yes, seven years. What are, what are, what's another part? Everyone has to go to Egypt because that's the only place where there's grain. And then what was, what's going to happen before the seven years of famine? Seven years of abundance. And so this is like this 14-year plan that the Lord has revealed. And he, he came to Pharaoh. I mean, just take the bird's eye view. This is crazy incredible. He comes to Pharaoh in a dream while Joseph's still in jail. Pharaoh has this dream, doesn't know what's going on, but the cupbearer who was once in jail with Joseph says, oh, wait, there was a guy. And then they bring Joseph out and Joseph tells the Pharaoh the dream and that's how they know that there's going to be seven years of abundance and seven years of famine. And that's why Joseph is now in this position because when he told Pharaoh, this is what's going to happen and this is what you should do, Pharaoh said, that sounds good. Why don't you be in charge of that? So he goes from a place of being imprisoned overseeing the prison because he's such a good prisoner. That's not normal. And then he is put in Pharaoh's house, in Pharaoh's presence. And rather than just saying the dream right, he he gains trust in the meeting and he shows great wisdom in the meeting. And then he's put in a place where he's overseeing Egypt, which eventually leads to a place of worldwide influence. And he's just a Hebrew slave in Egypt. God's done a lot of things to make this happen. And ultimately, he's caring greatly for his people. One thing I hope as we um, dive into this tonight is that Y'all be really overwhelmed by God's goodness. This morning as I was praying and 
considering these verses, I just realized how rare of an occasion it is for us to shut it and stop down. Just think about how good God is. He cares for us in so many ways. Like, it should be overwhelming. I read something today, I think it was Francis Chan, where he said, he said, it's a really cool thing to worship a God that you can't, like, you can't, like, say too much about him. You can't embellish. You can't, like, overestimate or, or really, oh, that's a little far. Is he really that good? You can't overdo it when you're worshiping our God because he's so good. And here, he cares for his people in a very particular way that actually affects us who are sitting here generations later studying what he has done in the past. So 47, 13. Now there was no food in all the land, for the famine was very severe, so that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished by reason of famine. Uh, What does it mean to languish? How would y'all say that in your own words? Suffer? Any other words come to mind? Endure? Endure? Yeah? Yeah? Gut it out? This is, I, I ask that because it's not a word we use a lot, because it's not an experience we have a lot. There's not many of us who, oh, languishing, unless we're being like dramatic. Not, of us, not many of us have experienced what it means to languish or what it even is to, to languish. There's this picture of, of, of weak and feeble and lacking progress and just unable to even move forward because you don't have the resources to do so. It's this place of desperation, this place where you've been brought so low that the conditions are really, really bad and there's real concern for, for life itself. That's not something we've experienced a lot, so that's why I start off with the question, what does it even mean to languish? What, what is that word? So I want us to climb into the text. Remember, anytime we're studying the word, we observe and observe and observe. And one of the best things you can do when you're observing God's word is to climb into the text and port your senses. What does this look like? What does this smell like? As I'm sitting here in Egypt and I'm looking around, what am I seeing? Um, imagine the difference between, just consider the difference between not being able to afford the food I want. Has anyone ever experienced that? Where you weren't able to afford the food you want? Yeah, I mean, I want steak, like, all the time. You can't eat steak all the time. And I want someone else to cook it, so that's even harder. Um, There's a difference between being able to, not being able to afford the food I want, and there being no food at all. Like, don't just think, oh, that's a bummer, they couldn't get what they wanted. No, there was no food. It wasn't a matter of, I can't get to Walmart. It was a matter of, there's no food in Walmart. It wasn't a matter of, I, I, can't, I can't just find it. I know it's here. I can't. It's not there. This is a famine. The conditions are very, very bad. So for us, maybe, maybe, maybe we've missed a meal before. Maybe. I mean, a lot of us sitting in here haven't even ever missed a meal. Here, there's no food. Okay, so the conditions are really bad. Look at verse 14. And Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan in exchange for the grain that they bought. And Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. Now remember, the whole earth was coming to Egypt for what? And for the grain they gave what? So instead of big piles of grain, they have big piles of 
money. There's a lot of money in Egypt right now. Joseph's moved in a very wise manner. Remember, this was a 14-year plan. The first seven years were what? Abundance. The second seven years were what? Famine. So Joseph is bringing in a lot of money. I have a question. Is Joseph using the unfortunate circumstance of the people to get rich? His wisdom, okay. What is Joseph? A steward? What other titles does he have? Second in command, that's a big deal. But attached to that second in command is what? Yeah, there's a lot of responsibility there. He's in a line of patriarchs. He's got a lot of hats on. This is really interesting. He's also a Hebrew slave. He doesn't get a paycheck. It's not like, hey, you sell, uh, you sell a couple, however many uh, pounds of grain and you'll get a sweet Christmas bonus, Joseph. He's a Hebrew slave. He doesn't get a bonus. He doesn't get a cut. He's provided for, but he's not a citizen of Egypt. He's a Hebrew slave. We've got to keep that in mind. So, and the reason I bring that up, we'll talk more about it as we study through this, but there are Really, when it comes to the commentators, it's like half and half. Some of them view Joseph in light of oh, sort of an opportunistic move there, wasn't it? Taking advantage of people when they're down. And then others would say otherwise. So we're going to look at both sides as we go through this. But he is a servant. The money is going into the house of Pharaoh. And if not for his grain, Egypt would be dead. If not for this plan, they would starve. Or it would turn into mutiny and revolt. It would be a mess if there was not grain for them to buy when they were hungry. The whole world was coming to Egypt. Here's another question. Two questions. I'll, I'll, I'll ask it together and y'all give me your thoughts. Is it wrong to be rich? And why? No. Okay. So that's good. <laughs> and why do some people act like it is a sin to have money? Yes. Is it? Yeah. Yeah, the, the, the love of money's root of all. He who desires to be rich falls into many snares. So we see this picture. I want to make it clear. This is hard because it's not saying it's wrong to be rich. But he who desires to be rich falls into many snares. The love of money is the root of, of evil. So we got to keep our eye on Joseph on this. As Joseph brings in pile after pile, do we see his focus turn from, he's bringing in pile after pile, but he's keeping his eyes on the people and making sure that the people are okay and the grain is there and they have what they need and the pile after money. Is there any point where Joseph kind of shifts his focus to the people and says, Whoo-hoo, look at this big fat pile of money, sweetness. I love this, and I want more of it. How can, I, how can I manipulate these people? Is there any point that this happens? We need to keep our eye on Joseph in this. Uh-huh. Yep. Thank you. 
Yeah. Yeah. That's a great point. The dynamic does change a little bit when his family shows up. I mean, he could be like, sweet, the Israelites are here. I mean, the, the people of God are here. I'm going to forget the Egyptians. I'm going to place some power. I'm just going to focus on the Israelites. He doesn't do that. He continues to do his job well to a specific purpose. Um, so that second question, why do some people act like it's a sin to have money? Jealous, jealousy? Covetousness? Yeah. Yep. Because of misuse of wealth, you become skeptical of anybody who has it. That's a great point. It's easy to see somebody go buy a car that maybe is out of my price range uh-huh. and instantly assume that they're spending more than they should be. Yeah. I really don't know what their funds are or yep. you know, how, they, how long they've saved that or whatever. So it's easy to, to uh, put myself into their situation yeah. and assume. Yeah. Yeah, I will judge your situation according to my standard because my standard is obviously the right standard. Yeah, that, that's, a, that's a great observation. Yeah, th- this is. Yeah. 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 That's Ram- That's very Ramsey-ish. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's. Well, it's in the Bible too, so that's good. Yeah. 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 They- yeah, <laughs> that's a good point. The aim there is to get rich, which is a little off kilter. Uh, we can talk about that later. Yeah, perspective is everything, and, and in this, I, I really want us to, the reason I'm bringing up these awkward questions is because riches, wealth, um, it's, it's been so misused, as you said, um, people have been such bad stewards, people have been so self-serving, to such a degree that when a guy in a pulpit starts talking about money, the whole room's instantly turned off in a lot of settings. I'm not saying that's happened tonight. But a lot, of, I mean, if I was to get up and say, okay, we're going to talk about money tonight, there might be a party that's like, oh, man, my show starts at whatever. I mean, there, there's, it's been such a, there's been such an ungodly view of money and work and riches, wealth, that um, the water's really muddied 
when we start to talk about these things. And this whole chapter is essentially one big fat business transaction for the glory of God. And so this is, this is complicated. Um, as we talk through these things, I want y'all to consider, rather than rich versus poor, consider righteous versus unrighteous. Because you can be rich and righteous or rich and unrighteous. You can be poor and righteous, poor and unrighteous. Or God-fearing and not God-fearing. Are you a God-fearing person who has wealth? Are you a God-fearing person who is poor? The point is God, not your wealth or not your lack of it. And so keep your eye on that as, as we move uh, through these verses. Now, look at verse 15. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Well, Clay just told you all the end of the study, but I guess we'll go through it anyway. <laughs> Gave away the punchline. No, let's. Uh, I think it's still worth it. I think it's still worth. It. No. Yeah, we'll look at uh, look at verse fifteen. And when the money was all spent in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph. Now, now, see that. See that for what it is. All the Egyptians came to Joseph. Like just, just that in itself is pretty cool because that shows that God's done a whole lot of stuff for this to get to where it's at. All the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, Give us food. Why should we die before your eyes? For our money is gone. So they're saying, Hey, we're hungry and we're out of money. Um, you've done pretty good on this so far. Can we have more of that food? Because this is a problem. Because if we don't have food, we die. That's what we're dealing with here. Like, he's got, what's happening here is actually probably men who are heading up households and leading families are going to Joseph and saying, I've got kids at home, and I've got a wife at home, and they're going to die if we don't have food. And so we're out of money. Can Can we have some food? Even though we're out of money, what, what do we do here? It's sort of this quandary like, we don't have food, we don't have money, but we've got to have food. What do we do? Give us food. Why should we die before your eyes for our money is gone? And Joseph answered, give your livestock, and I will give you food in exchange for your livestock if your money's gone. So Joseph says, we can, we can do something here. I've got more food, but I can't just open it up and turn it into mutiny and craziness. There's more food, but give me your livestock and I'll give you food if your money's gone. Or some translations kind of paint the picture of, I'll, sell, I'll buy your livestock, you take that money and buy grain so that you have food. So they, bought, uh, so they brought their livestock to Joseph and Joseph gave them food in exchange for the horses, the flocks, the herds, and the donkeys. He supplied them with food in exchange for all their livestock that year. What do we do? Joseph in wisdom, says, let me think through this for a minute because it's going to take some, some specific things in place and some, some details that need a lot of attention. He says, I, I'll, let's do this. I'll, I'll give you food in exchange for the livestock, and that gives them life for another year. Life. Not just makes them happy for another year. They're not just pleased with the leadership of the country for another year. They don't die because of the wisdom that he's showing here. What we are observing here is one of the most lucrative business plans recorded in the Scriptures. That's what we're looking at tonight. It is a lucrative business plan. It is recorded in the Scriptures. God, I would say, goes out of His way to lead Moses to record the God-influenced movements of Joseph and the resulting care for many. Let me say that again because there's a lot of parts there. God, all Scriptures breathed out by God, goes out of His way 
to lead Moses, who records Genesis. He leads Moses to record his, his influence, God's influence on the movements of Joseph. And Joseph's movements impact the people greatly and, in fact, affect us today in the way that we're sitting. Resulting care for many. This portion of the chapter in Genesis is largely about how you planned, how you spend money, and how you do your job. That's, that's a lot of what this chapter is about. How do you make your plan? Do you make plans? Do you have a plan? How do you spend your money? And how do you do your job? That's what this chapter is largely about. Is there any part of your job, I'm asking this to y'all, is there any part of your job that is not affected by your relationship with Christ? Like think about everything you do in your job, your J-O-B, where you've been all day before you got here. Is there any part of that job, is there any section of the job, is there any corner of the job, is there any aspect of the job that's not influenced or affected by your relationship with Christ? There shouldn't be. I'm seeing a lot of this. Does anybody feel that you have a part of your job that's not affected by your relationship with Christ? I dare you to raise your hand. (laughs) Yeah, what we're getting at here is this. I've asked that question. Everyone's thought, well, no. Now I'll ask this question. Um, Have you ever considered specifically how every part of your job is affected by your relationship with Christ? Like some of y'all do things that they don't talk about Jesus all day. They don't like, okay, uh, 15 minutes for quiet time, be back, we'll have a meeting at 11. That's not normal. Um, A lot of it is about, um, let's make sure you make more money this week than you did last week. And in fact, I would say that there are some jobs that that y'all are doing where I would encourage you, go make more money for the company you work for. Like, go work in such a way that you bring them a lot of money. Like, work hard. Now, I say that, and I ask this question, As y'all are thinking through that, let me hear some feedback from y'all. What are some ways that your relationship with Christ specifically affects your job? Yeah, there's perspective gained. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, what you just said is, is walking in the preached word. Like, that's a large reason why we have our small groups is that it's not just so you get together and teach the sermon again or preach through the sermon again or even just outline the notes. It's walking the preached word. It's saying, this is my job. My job is I get here at this time. I check in at this time. I'll be around this person, this person, this person. I have these tasks to accomplish. And I've been sent into all of it according to John 17. So what does that look like? Huh. Oh, and I'm sent with a message. What does that look like? Huh. That's what it means to walk in the preached word. And so that example you just gave is a prime example of walking the preached word and how your job affects it. What are some other things? Or how it affects your job. It's a good giggle. I don't know whose it is, but it's a good giggle. <laughs> Mike, is that you? <laughs> nice. How else? I think for, for me, and maybe for you, we've worked around Christians all along, mm-hmm. for sure. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great point. I want you all to know that at any point in time, I can slip into my motivation for Wednesday nights being, I hope everyone likes the study. hope they all love that. I'm going to work hard today so that they think it's awesome. Like, that's all wrong. Like, I do hope that for the glory of God. I do hope that for the well-being of, of, of the body. But, but motivation, that, that's a huge part, whether, you know, maybe, maybe even more so if you're in a very Christian-y environment. Because you can find yourself motivated by the wrong things. It's like you misrepresent your company, or I'm sorry, you represent your company second to God, no matter what you're doing. So the way you're answering the phones, where you're talking, I mean, if the motive, getting back to the motive thing, you're not representing your company, your organization, whatever first. If you're a Christian, you're representing your Lord first, and then things flow down from there. And if you misrepresent your Lord, I guarantee that things are not going to flow down well because it's backwards from the get-go. Look at... Um, I would, I would offer, before we look at these next verses, that uh, God expects from his children a particular level of scrutiny and attention and work ethic, according to these verses. I just see Joseph as a, he really is a prime example. I don't want to just limit Joseph to being an example for us. I mean, this is a child of God used by God in an amazing way, and it's all about God. But Joseph does set an example for us in this. And um, 
really what we're doing is we're reflecting the character of the one we serve. Um, we're putting God's glory on display. We want to be a reflection of God to the culture, not of the culture, you know, back to God, like we said before. So to be clear, this is a horrible famine that is greatly affecting two countries, Egypt and Canaan, right? Um, it was so severe that the people have run out of money to buy grain, so Joseph offers to buy all of the livestock. There's a lot of wisdom when there's a famine and people are out of money and you're the guy who says, okay, cool, I'll buy all your livestock so you can have more money to buy more grain so you don't starve. He has shown a great deal of wisdom here. It's overwhelming to me when I'm reading it thinking, how did a Hebrew slave end up making such a good decision there for not just himself? Like we could be tempted to look and say, oh, he did very well for himself. He did well for Egypt and Canaan. People didn't die because he made good decisions in his business. No, yeah. 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 For Pharaoh, who thought he was God. I mean, if you think your boss stinks, really, think, think of that in perspective. I'd work harder for him if he wasn't such a jerk. Pharaoh thought he was God. Like, that really does give you some perspective. I know that many of you are in some very difficult work situations where you're thinking, man, I don't know if it's worth any effort to put anything more into this company or situation, or organization, or association, or whatever. And uh, he was a Hebrew slave in Pharaoh's court. Pharaoh thought he was God. He knew who the one true God was and did his work for him and made Pharaoh really rich for the glory of God. He made Pharaoh really rich for the glory of God. That's weird. Yeah. That's a great connection, man. It's the opposite of deacon. Mm -hmm. you know, and, and that's how I think of myself in my job. You know, is I'm, I might be appointed as a deacon. Yeah. You know, not necessarily an elder, but a deacon. Yeah. That's what he was doing. He was just, you know, serving in the role he yeah. put in. That's a huge, huge connection. Diakonos, servant. Again, <laughs> consider your work uh, environment. Um, I know that a lot of people are heavily scrutinized in their work, and, um, but the baker's head was lifted off. Don't forget that the baker's head was lifted off. That, get, that does give some perspective. Um, so Joseph buys all of the livestock. Then the people take their money and buy grain, of which there is enough. Like there was grain. So not only did he have all the money, he has more grain for the people. I mean, that takes a lot of work, a lot of work. You're talking about nations being fed by this, enough to sustain them for how long? Yeah, the next year. So now we're in a situation where the people are taken care of, and Egypt has all the money and of the livestock. Is anyone thinking, show of hands, not out loud, is anyone thinking at this time that well, maybe now Joseph's taking advantage of the situation of those in a tight spot. Kind of maybe he's starting, it's like, well, now he has all the money and he's got all the livestock. I mean, what more could he take from them? Okay, let's look. 
Evidently, during the flourishing years, none of the Egyptians saved. Think about that. There were seven years of abundance. We, we had something similar in this country, maybe leading up before September 11th. Things went south there in large part. In the dot-com boom, maybe there was a lot of money being made. Everyone's good. I mean, we have this perspective that if it's good and good, it's just going to get better. And up and up and up. It's always going to get worse at some point. I mean, one of the things we saw in our previous days is your, your hardest days are before you. Prepare. Um, this, is, um, this is what I would call sober-mindedness. We're not intoxicated by uh, the highs of, of, of a season of, of abundance. But we can be sober-minded and be smart and make plans and, and be wise in our spending and not be self-serving. Because it will change at some point. I mean, the Lord doesn't say, uh, things are getting better and they will only get better until I come back. He says in the last days there will be uh, more wickedness on the earth th- than we've previously seen. It- it'll get crazy. Things might get worse before they get a whole lot better. And we might have some ups and downs between then. We might have an up where we're like, man, this is great. I can actually pay all my bills on time. Whew. I don't have to like hope that I'm making it to the bank before I get the, the bill clears, you know? This is good. We might have some of those up times, but we have to be sober-minded and make plans. None of the Egyptians planned. No one had enough grain to get them through even the first part of the famine. It was like immediate pandemonium. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, is it awkward or really smart? One or the other. Yeah. Do what? Yeah, what happens when there's no food for the people? No food for the livestock. There's not a lot in here about that, but it's a really good observation because it's like, well, is he trying to save the livestock? Are they, are they going to eat the livestock? What are they, they going to do? Yes. Yep. Yeah, we have computers, and this job would be hard with computers. Like, we could make a database that shows exactly where all the grain is and what it weighs and how much each person has. And on average, what is a, a person who's a 140 pounds, how much grain can they consume? That'd be hard now. And you can be, rest assured, it was difficult then. It took a lot of work, a lot of work. Um, and what's up? Yeah. 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 That's great. In fact, keep that picture in your mind as we continue to read. As we continue to read, keep the picture in mind of a bunch of unhappy people or a bunch of people in a place of turmoil going to the leader and saying, what's up? What's the deal? And, and, and look at how this turns out. Picture an odd out there with a bow and arrow. I got it. Um, um, yeah, so uh, question. That's a good point, and we'll consider it more later. Question, uh, what would keep you from saving during a time of plenty? 
we've all experienced a season of more than another season. We call it abundance. For some, it's extreme abundance. For some, it's sort of abundance-ish. Um, but what would keep us from saving during a time of plenty? Indulgence. What else? Maybe making up for things in the past. Cool. That was very verbose. Yes. It's good. <laughs> yeah, where do they sell those? <laughs> I would like one of those. Are they on sale right now? Um, <laughs> Why else? Uh, what would keep you from saving during a time of plenty? <laughs> Stupidity. That's good. She said your name first. Yeah. 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 There can be selfishness, lack of perspective, worldliness. I want y'all to consider this too as, as we read these next verses. Joseph worked hard all the time. He worked hard in the abundance time and he worked hard in the non-abundance time. I mean, he, he, he just worked hard. And that's the pattern of life that we've been given. It's mainly hard work with seasons of rest. It's not a life of rest with occasional work. And some, I mean, I know a lot of guys who have had times where they're like, man, I wish I had more work. I think that's a God-given impulse where it's like, man, I, I want to swing this hammer. I want to hack away on a computer, whatever. I don't, I don't know if you want that, but <laughs> you might want that. But, but like th- this, this thing where it's like, I, I've sat here for a day and I feel like I'm about to go crazy. I think that's a God-given impulse because we're designed to have a life of work with seasons of rest, not a life of rest with seasons of work. And we see here that, um, in fact, Joseph worked hard both during the time of abundance and the time of need. And I mean, consider Sabbath. We have six days of work and a, and a day of rest by, by God's design from the get-go. And he modeled it for us in creation. Look at verse 18. And when that year was ended, they came to him the following year and said this. Now, it's, go- it's getting worse. Joseph's good. He's being smart. But it is getting worse. The conditions are worsening. Uh, they came to him the following year and said, uh, we will not hide from my Lord that our money is all spent. Like, we ran out of money. You bought our livestock. We bought grain. And we're out of money again. And we're not going to hide it. The herds of livestock are my Lord's. There's nothing left in the sight of my Lord but us and our land. Our bodies and our land is what they literally say. Why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land? Buy us and our land for food, and we with our land will be servants to Pharaoh. And give us seed that we may live and not die, and that the land may not be desolate. So Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh, for all the Egyptians sold their fields because the famine was severe on them. The land became Pharaoh's. As for the people, he made servants of them from one end of Egypt to the other. Now, before you think, okay, that's a little too far, he turned them all into servants. Whose idea was it? The people. The people are like, you know what? 
You haven't let us down, and we're not dead yet. We'll submit to this. We got an idea. We want you to know we were thinking, and this is what we came up with. This is pretty unique. The Egyptians are thankful. What do they say? What do they say? You saved our lives. That's what they said. You saved our lives. A business plan is considered uh, lucrative when it produces a great deal of gain or profit. What, what has been gained in Joseph's business plan so far? Uh, that was brilliant, Patrick. I'm, I mean, the way you worded that was brilliant. So it sounds like Walmart. <laughs> Joseph Mark. Wow, this is getting out of hand quickly. Um, yeah, all the land, all the people, all the money, all the livestock, and everyone's life has been spared because of it. This certainly reflects our relationship with Christ. Make the shift with me. He rescued us from eternal death, and now we're His. We belong to Jesus. We would have died an eternal death if not for something that Jesus interceded and did. And he did so in the form of a servant. All of our land, all of our money, all of our belongings, all of our livestock, all of our cars, everything is his. Do you think like this? Because I guarantee some of us don't. And I know in my own life, I've had seasons where I didn't think like this. I thought 90% is mine and 10% of yours. It may be, if the month's going okay. That's how I've thought previously in my life. Or do you reserve a portion just for you? Or maybe the portion you reserve is this is Jesus' little portion. What I'm getting at is this. Jesus allows us to keep 90%, but it is still his. Like we have these finance meetings and we look at our budget for the church. And there's always this other factor called the body. Y'all see that? What I mean is this. We surrender everything to his will. So when, when I look at our annual budget for Crosspoint, I'm always reminded that that's not all that there is. Steve goes to the extent all the time to be like, yeah, but the body. There, that, that's not all. There, that line item says this number, but we could put that before the body because it, it involves a person and that person will be taken care of. It happens all the time. It's beautiful. So our annual operating budget at Crosspoint is $456,000 a year, roughly. But what I'm getting at is this. I don't look at that and say, okay, people of Crosspoint Fellowship, we only have $456,000 with which to serve the Lord this year. That's not how we look at it. We have millions of dollars annually in this body with which to serve the Lord. It's all His. We're to worship God with all of it. And when we think this way, we find that there's great benefit to the kingdom of God. If we're, if we're thinking in terms of, okay, I'm a good Christian, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let go of this portion. That's different than thinking everything I have is God's and everything I do is supposed to be kingdom work. So when I look at the body of believers here, I don't see $456,000 operating budget per year. That's all we got to do ministry and kingdom work. There's millions of dollars in the people's hands with which all of it is to be kingdom-oriented in every piece of the movement. Not selfish, not self-serving. Take care of your families. Take people out to dinner. Buy your kids clothes. Pay tuition, whatever it might be. But know that we're not limited in our thinking like this. Everything is, is God's because he, he's purchased our entire lives, our entire being, joyfully. We should be like the Egyptians saying, you saved our lives. 
What can I do to serve? This is great. We're not dead. And I want to pour my life out for you. 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 2. Um, it says, first of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This means that we pray for our leadership, that we might live according to the instructions that we have received from the Lord. In verse 22, it talks about priests. Look at verse 22. Only the land of the priests he did not buy, for the priests had a fixed allowance from Pharaoh and lived in the allowance, uh, on the allowance Pharaoh gave them, therefore they didn't sell their land. That, what that's talking about is the Egyptian priests, not Hebrew priests. These aren't God-fearing priests. But there's this mandate that says the people should be able to worship who they want to worship. We believe there's only one God, and we hope that they worship them. But in being given the ability to worship who you want, we have opportunity to share with people and tell them about the one true God. Um, look at verse 23. They, Joseph said to the people, we'll just read through the rest of the chapter. Then Joseph said to the people, Behold, I have this day bought you and your land for Pharaoh. Now here is seed for you, so you shall sow the land. So not only did he have enough grain and enough money and enough thought to be able to do this, he had enough seed somewhere. We said here, along with that, take seed and sow in this land. The time is right for this. And he gives them seed so that they can sow in the land. Look what happens. Here's seed for you, you shall sow in the land. And at the harvest, you shall give a fifth to Pharaoh, and, a four, and four fifths shall be your own. Question, do you get to keep 80%? Because you might be thinking, he's going to take a fifth, a whole fifth? The church only says I have to give a tenth. That's what I thought the first time I read that. I was like, 10% is a lot, 20% is more, like double more. <laughs> do y'all get to keep 80% of your paycheck? Everyone's looking around like, so I'm going to raise your hand. I'm going to go apply. Um, yeah, uh, so this is a very reasonable number. And in fact, I would say that uh, a more self-serving leader would probably put a heavier burden on the people. This is very reasonable. Uh, now here's seed for you. You shall, uh, you shall uh, sow the land. A harvest you shall give a fifth to Pharaoh. Four fifths shall be your own as seed for the field and food for yourselves and for your households and as food for your little ones. You hear, you hear his language? It's like, yeah, I care about your little ones. I want you to know I toil and I struggle and I strive because I care about your family. That's the sound of, that's, that's pastoral sounding. Like in Colossians, it talks, or, yeah, in Colossians 1, going into 2, it talks about how he, he Paul's saying to the church, he says, I want you to see how I struggle and strive. I want you to know I care about your family. I care about your well-being. I hear that same lingo here. He says, you'll have food for yourselves and for your households and for your little ones because I care about your little ones. I want to function in such a way that your, your kids are okay, that, that, they're, that they're taken care of. This is sweet. And they said, you have saved our lives. May it please, you have saved our lives. May it please my Lord. We will be servants to Pharaoh. It's their idea. So Joseph made it a statute concerning the land of Egypt, and it stands to this day that Pharaoh should have the fifth. The land of the priests alone did not become Pharaoh's. Thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt. Look at this transition. We go from Egypt back to Israelites, and look at this. Thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen, and they gained possessions in it. How does that even happen? That's crazy. They gained possessions in it. They were fruitful 
and they multiplied greatly. So they're over there gaining possessions and making babies and fulfilling the promises of the Lord. God protects his people in the land of Goshen. He cares for them greatly. When I started out tonight, I said, I hope that we see the goodness of God. This morning as I was praying, I was thinking, man, it's like a wave that passes over you and you got your mouth open. And it's just, you, you take in so much, thinking, I don't know if I can take it anymore. And then he gives you a bar of breath. You can get just enough, just get passed over again. It's like rain that falls on you and cools you off, like the sun that beats down on you and warms you. It's so real. God's goodness is so real. You can smell it and you can taste it. And you can see it and you can hear it if you'll stop and consider what all he has done. The people in the land of Goshen are cared for. They're multiplying. They're increasing in number and they're, they're living lives and, and moving forward exactly as God promised. He is so good. He's so incredibly good. They could just look at this and say, this stinks. This isn't the promised land. I don't like Goshen. It's right next to Egypt. Those people are rude. No one cares about us. Uh, they're racist. I'm totally thinking that someone said that at some point, or could have. The Israelites looking at the Egypt saying, they don't like us. They think we're an abomination. This whole situation seems rather they're being cared for by God in the land of Goshen, and God's promises are just being fulfilled every day. You're good. I'm taking care of you. I'm your God. I'm on my throne. I'm not napping. This is okay, even though we're in a famine I got your boy Joseph over here taking care of things. You're blessed abundantly. God's goodness is so crazy real. Crazy real. Ephesians 4, 11 through 13 says, For I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and abundance. Plenty and hunger. I've learned the secret of facing abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. What evidence do we have that Joseph has learned this lesson? The secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Yeah. Working his tail off in the time of abundance and the time of need. In the time of abundance, he's not getting some blinged out gold-plated chariot. He's saving. He's taking care of the nations. He has an eye to the nations. He has an eye toward the people of God. He has an eye towards the people in who have been entrusted to his, his, his work. He cares about the other people in Pharaoh's household. He cares about the people he's working with. He cares about Egyptians who, have, who know nothing about his God. He's learned the secret of facing both. There's a secret of facing both. For many of us, we don't, <laughs> we don't think there's a secret to facing plenty. There's no secret. Let me, give me, get, let me take a shot at it. I'm going to take a shot at it. Come on. That's not a secret. That won't be hard. But there's a secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. For many of us, we think if there is a secret, we would like to spend our time on that little mystery as opposed to learning the secret of facing need and hunger. Give me some time to face the secret of plenty. I, I welcome that. But I don't know about facing the secret of need and hunger. The people get to keep 80%. Look at verse 27. So they settled in Egypt, in the land of Goshen, and they gained possessions in it and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So the days of, Jacob's, uh, of Jacob, the years of his life, were 147. It's pretty crazy. Um, Joseph, just a cool observation, uh, he was 17 when he was sold into slavery. So for the first 17 years of life, he was taken care of by his father. And for the last 17 years of his father's life, he takes care of his father. That's how it is. That's how it was then. It's how it is now. 
Your, your parents take care of you when you're young. When they get older, you take care of them. That's the right thing to do. It's modeled here briefly for us. And when the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, if now I have found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. I don't know if you've ever had anyone do that, but you know they're serious when they say, put your hand under my thigh um, and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in the burying place. He answered, I will do as you have said. And he said, swear to me. And he swore to him. Then Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed. That's a, the picture there is like of a staff and he's just tired. He says, you promise me. And then he just kind of, he kind of leans over on his staff and just rests. He's, he's an old man at this point. Um, So they make final plans according to Jacob's wishes and make promises. A, a few, I just want to kind of close with a handful of satellites briefly. I want to read these out loud. And I just want you all to keep them in your mind as, as we consider this weird chapter on this whole business transaction. 1 Thessalonians 4, 10 through 12. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more and to aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may live properly before outsiders. And be dependent on no one. There were some in the Thessalonian church who had become lazy and it was affecting their witness. Not just their work. It affected their witness. In the Thessalonian church, the work ethic and attitude about the work is designed by God to have a positive and eternal impact on outsiders is what it says. So like the way that you go sell a product or the way that you swing a hammer or the way that you respond to, to a coworker in some divine eternal way has an impact on outsiders. By God's design, according to those verses. We looked at Jeremiah 29, 7 last week that says, But seek the welfare of the city where I sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you'll find your welfare. Care about what's going on around us. Pray for those who are in leadership in hopes that we can live in such a manner as to put God's glory on display. What, hopefully what we're catching on to is it's bigger than us. Like, don't... If, if this is saying anything, it's clearly saying don't just focus on your own little life and your own little issues and, and your own little desires, but, but look up and consider I'm a part of a community. Whether it's a believing community, a non-believing community, you're a part of a community and God has put you there. He has sent you there with a message so that you will function in such a way as to put his glory on display. Colossians 3, 22 through 24 says, slaves, I mean, think, as I read this, think about Joseph. Slaves and yourselves in light of Christ. Obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. What does sincerity of heart look like? What does sincerity of heart have to do with fearing the Lord? How are people pleasers really self-serving? Whatever you do, work heartily is for the Lord and not for men. Whatever you do, work heartily. That's for the Lord and not for men. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward, you're serving the Lord Christ. And turn to Colossians 1.28 with me through 2.5. I cited it earlier, mainly because I forgot we were ending with it. One twenty-eight. This is what we do. If you're wondering what we do, this is what we do. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone 
Mature in Christ. When you see repetition in Scripture, you pay attention. What's the repetition in these verses? Everyone, 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 not just me. I don't just work on me and mine and my own. I don't just look out for number one here. Everyone. And we proclaim warning everyone, teaching everyone with all wisdom. We present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea. You can almost hear Joseph's words. I want you to know I care about your little ones and I'm going to work hard. In the season of abundance, in the season of, 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 of need, I'm going to work hard. I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love. And listen to this part, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments, for though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order. Good order. Joseph cared about that. And the firmness of your faith in Christ in Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I was talking to someone today who's going through something um, that is, it's hard, and it's not like a church thing. It's a business thing, and, and it's hard. And we were talking about how there's no wisdom and knowledge outside of Christ. Like, it doesn't matter what you're doing, whether it's engineering, construction, uh, cleaning up, whatever. Knowledge and wisdom are in Christ. What you need to do that well in a God-glorifying way is Christ. You reflect on Christ and you work. And while you're working, you're thinking about Christ. And as you speak, you respond in a way that puts Christ's glory on display. In Christ, it is in Christ that are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. He informs everything. So there's not these separate compartments like, okay, the Jesus thing's over here and the work thing's over here. No, all wisdom, knowledge in Christ. There's no other place to find it. This means that as you work hard all day long, our thoughts are towards the Lord who sustains us and gives us wisdom and knowledge and understanding so that we can be a benefit not only to ourselves, but a benefit to the people of God and a benefit to our community and a benefit to people who know him and people who don't know him. Everybody, for the glory of God. Let's pray. Lord, what a humbling piece of scripture we've gotten to dig into tonight and feast on. I pray that we'd continue thinking about it as we leave here. Um, Lord, I, I pray for conviction. It's pretty easy to leave here and, oh, that was cool. And just like we picked up another little puzzle piece. And that is true. I hope it's true that we're connecting dots and getting more pieces to the puzzle so that we can understand how great you are. But I really pray for conviction that wherever you have us, we would serve in the capacity that's appropriate for a believer. We love you, Lord, and we want to honor you in everything. And it's really hard because I wish I could speak to it more specifically tonight, Lord. I'm thinking about the fact that this is a room full of people who do very different things every day, who are in very different scenarios every day, who work with very different people every day. But this informs according to your plan, the way you want it. And so I pray for conviction where it's needed. 
I pray for guidance where it's needed. Lord, I pray what, what is mentioned in James, that if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all. I, I lack wisdom. I believe, I have fellow believers who are sitting here with me that lack wisdom, and, and we need wisdom to move forward in this, and we know from your word that it's only in Christ that we'll receive that. So we humbly ask all these things in Jesus' name. We humbly pray and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.